Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. is a busy weeknight. So I wanted to talk about Judaism and the ethic of protest. And sort of as a jumping off point, I start with the fact that, uh, first of all, I apologize if uh, I'm wearing sunglasses inside. I'm not trying to be cool. Uh, They're prescription, and I left my non- sunglasses, uh, prescription glasses somewhere, I'm not sure where, so. We thought it was a whole John Lennon. Yeah, so it's not, I'm not trying to be Joe Cool, although I've been thinking about, about uh, Snoopy, uh, his cousin in the desert, as I've driven, driven east through the desert here, uh, Spike, uh, but, um, uh, but as I, I, when I, whenever I am present at some kind of political protest or demonstration, or I see one in the news, very often, maybe more often than not, depending on what, where I am in the world, some of the groups that are there are going to be Jewish. And they're going to be there because they're Jewish. And my question is, why should that be? Why, why is it that Jews are choosing to express their Jewish identity, their Jewishness, by going to protests. Is that a, why is that a Jewish thing to do? And does the Jewish tradition, does our Jewish tradition uh, provide us with a precedent or uh, uh, a set of role models uh, that, that tell us that this is actually a fundamentally Jewish thing to do? So I'm gonna, I, 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 this is uh, not a, theor- a rhetorical question. I'm actually asking you, is protesting, is, is protesting a Jewish a fun, intrinsically Jewish thing to do. Can, yeah, Alan. I would imagine that post-Holocaust, possibly more so. You want to elaborate? Because we were all raised at this point with the reality that not enough people protested on our Ah, so why is protesting Jewish, and you say, uh, so one answer is the Shoah, or the Holocaust, you suggest, because had more people protested, perhaps uh, uh, thousands or millions of lives might have been spared. Um, So I think a part of the integrity of protest is that people bring who they are, and that you don't want to diminish diversity presence of diversity, and so um, uh, that people should bring their, you know, their gender identity, or they should bring their, 
religious or ethnic identity, or their, or their race as part of actualizing the integrity of the experience. So it's not that I'm protesting because I'm a Jew. I'm protesting, protesting as a Jew. And when I, go, when I go to a protest, when I do anything important, uh, I should be bringing my whole self and my whole identity. The lowest level, I, I mean, the, the most basic level, is that um, we should bring who we are. Right. So maybe some, of these, some groups are going to protest as Jewish groups, not because it's their Judaism that's telling them they have to go to, pro, to protest, but because they're Jews and everything they do is, is infused with that uh, identity. And they're bringing that. Yeah, James. Well, you know, I'm not a Jew, but um, there's some people testing. I, I think part of it is, is kind of this line of justice that seems to run through the Hebrew people's hearts and minds here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 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 you talked about this idea of justice, or or, or in Hebrew tzedek, uh, and the numerous times in the Torah and in the Bible we are uh, we are enjoined to love the stranger, not to oppress the stranger. So care for the stranger, and so I want to I I think this is clearly animating which causes many Jews choose to protest. Now the question is, what is it about marching the street and carrying signs or why is protesting the, the natural expression of that? Is there something in Judaism that tells us or, or in our tradition that tells us that our commitment to justice, our commitment to uh, caring for the stranger, loving the stranger, mandates that we should be publicly protesting. I saw, Steve, did you have a hand up? Oh, yeah. Would you say that, well, I don't think you're saying this, that protesting is unique to... I would not say unique. I, I would never want to say anything. Yeah, it, this is uniquely Jewish. Clearly, uh, I, I, cert, I just don't, you know, I don't ever want to speak to what other religions' uh, uh, intrinsic values are to them. But I do think... The question is whether it is an intrinsically Jewish, not to say uniquely Jewish well, you might, you might value. Say, though, that the prophets were the earliest model. Ah. Emerging from our, from our so, Okay, so we have what we call the prophetic tradition. And the certainly, uh, so, so, so we have this tradition of prophets in the Bible, and, and, and in Tanakh, in our Bible, Prophets are not primarily, uh, when we say nowadays we say someone is prophetic, we usually mean that they have some kind of finger on the pulse of the future. But the role of the prophet in the Bible is not to be primarily a fortune teller. A prophet is someone who is uh, a go-between, bringing the, uh, between God and uh, the people, and bringing needed messages of uh, moral and spiritual authority that the people need to hear, which often take the form of protesting uh, uh, immoral, unjust, or uh, religiously problematic behaviors. So the prophets provide one model. One problem with the prophets as a model of protest. How successful were the prophets? Not very often. You know, we have sort of what we call the later prophets, the sort of 
you know, Isaiah, uh, 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 Jeremiah, uh, Yechezkel, and the, uh, the, 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 the Treas are the 12 prophets who have their, you know, these prophets that have their own books named after them. And they all say, we told you so. And they all basically give, tell the people to change their behavior. And only one prophet was successful in getting his audience to change their behavior. Yonah. Yonah. He wasn't talking to Jews, right? He was talking to the non-Jewish citizens of Nineveh. So uh, one out of 15 is not a great batting average, right? Um, so I want to I, I wanna put, like, put a, little, uh, a, a, a little bookmark on that question of if this, is the, if this is our source for the Jewish tradition of protesting, uh, what does that say about what our goals are and how much protesting is uh, the best means of achieving those goals? I want to just put a bookmark on that, on that question. Are there any other examples from our tradition before we move on or ideas in our tradition that might animate this uh, uh, and motivate us to, to protest? Well, I think part of protesting is questioning, and I always knew Jews to question everything. Ah, so that we have a tradition of not accepting, uh, not just accepting authority blindly, right? We... We are, we are a, a people of questions, you know, uh, you know uh, one of the, the, the best thing a student can do is to have a good kushia, to have a pro, raise a, a really good problem with what, they're, what they just were taught or just learned. That's the, uh, so we have a tradition of questioning, which might, le- might make us uh, more prone to question uh, 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 authority in the political as well as the religious sphere. Yeah. For the whole general question, because we can, because for so long in history we could not. Ah, because we can. For once, we, because at least in this country, in this moment in history, we are in a position where we have the, uh, we have the freedom and privilege to, uh, to protest. Okay. I, um, so I will just, I mean, there's some, some examples that I think it's notable that we, uh, we didn't uh, hear about. So one of the most, uh, I think the, probably the most famous example of Jewish protest and, uh, and maybe the paradigm of Jewish protest that we didn't hear about is the single most famous story in all of the Bible, which is, let my people go. Moshe and Aaron go, uh, going to Pharaoh in Egypt uh, and demanding that Pharaoh let the, Jew, let the uh, Israelite people uh, go. Uh, that was also sort of a mixed bag whether that was successful. Ultimately, Pharaoh let the people go, not because of Moshe and Aaron's uh, uh, persuasive moral arguments, but because uh, he was, as it were, strong-armed by God, right? Uh, Moshe, you know, sort of we, Moshe and Aaron had a little bit of a tag team going uh, with uh, with. Uh, with uh, the, the, the uh, plagues and the wonders that God sent. But throughout, throughout the Tanakh, we have examples of, of, of protest. I won't, we, won't go th- we won't go through tonight every example of protest in the Bible, uh, but, uh, but it's it certainly throughout the pages of the Bible, we have prophets and other people protesting various things. But I think one of the earliest examples of Jewish protest uh, is source uh, number one. Did everyone get a source sheet? Um, so source number one on your source sheet uh, from the uh, book of Breshit, the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 18, 
And uh, the, um, we're, this is the story of uh, God has just visited Avraham and, and now informs Avraham that he is about to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, can I have a volunteer to read source number one? Amy? Um, then God said, the outrage of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so great. I will go down to see whether they have acted altogether according to the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will take note. The men went on from there to Sodom while Abraham remained standing before God. Abraham came forward and said, will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? What if there should be 50 innocent within the city? Will you then wipe out the place and not forgive it for the sake of the innocent 50 who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to bring death upon the innocent as well as the guilty, so that innocent and guilty fare alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all earth deal justly? So this, this, uh, so this is, I think, really the first, the first moment of Jewish protest. Uh, if Avraham we speak of uh, uh, as the first Jew, uh, here he is uh, doing this, what we're now maybe beginning to think is a quintessentially Jewish activity and protesting. But who is he protesting against? God. He's not protesting against the sinful behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's protesting against God. So if this is our first example of protest, what a powerful example that we start not by protesting against some evil foreign king or, or, or some powerful rich person. We're protesting God himself. Admittedly, in very respectful tones. Uh, and the, 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 the dialogue goes on, and Abraham speaks with, with great piety, even as he voices uh, a sentiment which has a, a certain amount of chutzpah in it, to be questioning God's uh, intention, uh, stated intentions. And he has this wonderful phrase where, where, where he says, Ashofet kol ha'aretz, Lo Will the judge of all the earth not act justly? So this connects to what we, what we said, that justice is an animating principle uh, of Jewish protest. And this takes that, uh, that principle of justice, which we'll hear more of throughout the, throughout the Torah and the Tanakh, and, and connects that idea of justice to an idea of speaking out, uh, as a, a, to demand that those in power, in this case, the ultimate power in the universe, adhere to principles of justice. Now, was this act of protest successful? So you might say, no, because Avraham uh, said his piece. There's a dialogue. You know, what about if there were 50 innocent people, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10? And in the end, there aren't enough innocent people to spare the city, and God destroys the city. Does anyone think that Abraham, but it, it, Abraham's protest in this case was not unsuccessful? You mean was successful? Is there any way we, way we could say that his protest was successful? Yeah. Well, 
it seems off. What you want to elaborate? We're here. We survived. We flourished. We're we're alive. Okay. It had to be successful, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Nobody. Okay. So if the so if the goal was saving the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe it wasn't successful. But if it's part of a larger project of creating uh, a thriving justice-oriented, morally-driven people that is dedicated to serving the ends of the divine in this world, well, I, it must have been successful because we're still in the, engaged in that project thousands of years later. Is that... Yeah. Uh, uh, Shmuel, you had... Were you... Yeah, so I, I think in addition to that, it feels to me like if protest is religious, then you don't just measure immediate results. There's an integrity to the act of engaging it. Ah. That, that transcends immediate results. Okay. That, so there's a question of integrity, which we're, we're going to get into the question of why we protest. If we're trying to stop uh, behavior or stop a perceived injustice, then the, the measure of success is, did we stop it or did we not? Did we change the behavior or did we not? It, by, measured by that measure, Abraham's protest was unsuccessful. But maybe there's a piece of that this is somehow an expression of our own religious integrity. That we are uh, maintaining religious integrity I'm not, you know, we can, we'll talk more about what that might mean, but I think, thank you for raising, raising that idea. Yeah. yeah. The story also gives us the ability to know that we can protest. Ah, so he taught us that we could protest even God himself. And if we can protest God's self, all the more so we can protest the most powerful pa kings and rulers of flesh and blood. It, it, it set the precedent. It set the precedent. Ah, so that might be another reason to set a precedent. Another reason, another reason for protesting might be set a precedent, create an example for future generations. Um, That also, that also is a measure by which we could look at the prophets of Israel, all those prophets who didn't get the people in their own generation to change their behavior. But the fact is, we're still reading their words thousands of years later. By that measure, by the measure of setting a precedent for the future, they were tremendously, wildly successful, even though they were ignored, in their own, uh, ignored and persecuted in their own time. So I want to look at another example from Avraham. Source number two. It says, now we're moving from the realm of protesting to the divine to a much more pragmatic realm of protesting the behavior of flesh and blood. This is just a few chapters later. And it's a story that's actually part of the Rosh Hashanah, the uh, high holiday Torah reading. Uh, that's read not only as part of the annual cycle of 
uh, the parasha, the, the weekly Torah portion, but it's read also read again uh, uh, on the high holidays, on these holiest days of the year. And it's the story of when the Avimelech, the king of the, the Philistines, and his uh, general, Fichol, uh, approach Avraham to make a treaty with him. Uh, would someone who has a, like to read? Helene? At that time, Avimelech and Fichol, mm-hmm. chief of his troops, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything that you do. Therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my kith and kin, but will deal with me and with the land in which you have sojourned as loyally as I have dealt with you. And Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham reproached Abimelech for the well of water, which the servants of Abimelech had Okay, so it's, we're, we're now filled in that the servants, i.e. the subjects uh, of this king, had stolen a, a well, had seized a well that belonged to Avraham, and Avraham is rebuking. The Hebrew word is, uh, is, uh, is that uh, he, uh, the Hebrew word is v'hochiach, that he rebuked him. Um, so I'm going to write this out. Hochiach. You can keep, uh, keep going. But Abimelech said, I do not know if you did this. You did not tell me, nor have I heard of it until today. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a pact. Abraham then set seven ewes of the flock by themselves, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what mean these seven ewes which you have set apart? He replied, You are to accept these seven ewes from me as proof that I dug this well. Okay. So Abraham rebukes uh, Avimelech, this powerful king who's trying to make a treaty with him. When does he rebuke him? After they made the treaty. It's very interesting. You might think someone comes to you and wants to sign a treaty with you. You might think, oh, now I have some leverage. This, uh, he, he wants to make a treaty with me. Now I'm going to raise all my, all my tainas, all my complaints. And Abraham actually doesn't do that. He signs the treaty unconditionally. And he gives him extra. Well, and he, he signs the treaty unconditionally. And then he says, by the way, your servant stole my well. So it's interesting that he's choosing, he's choosing rather than delivering this rebuke, this, uh, the, when, uh, before entering into a relationship with this king, he's choosing to deliver the rebuke rather in, in the context of once they have a formal covenantal relationship with each other. They've sworn oaths to be at peace with one another and not to do wrong by each other. And then Avraham Reyes says, well, here's a problem I have. So it's an interesting strategic uh, choice, or maybe it's a, philo- a whole philosophy of approaching this, that he's choosing to deliver a rebuke to someone he already has a relationship with, rather than someone who is uh, still perhaps in an adversarial role. And how is that received? How is his rebuke received? With a question. With a question. The question of why, why, why are you saying Oh, before he even sets the use apart, when he just says, Avraham, 
reproached him for the well of water. What's Avimelech's response? I didn't do it. I didn't know anything about it. No one told me. Right? Sort of, he's not claiming that the wells are rightfully his, but he's also not taking responsibility. Right? He's saying, oh, I didn't do it. And that might motivate what Abraham does next, which he gives him these ewes, and he says, what's this about? And he says, take the ewes as a sign that you're agreeing this is really my well. So, so it's not just, uh, this is not disinterested protest in the name of some notion of justice, or there, there is a sense of justice here, but it is also self-preservation and self-advocacy. Uh, and good business. And good business. Uh, but it, we use this word, I wanted to bring this text because we use this word of hochiach, of rebuke, which is going to become a basis of uh, moving us not from the realm of narrative, which we've been in so far, uh, to the realm of law. From the realm of agadah, of narrative, which is one of the main sources of uh, the ways that we learn about values from our tradition or from our stories about, that we tell and we relate and that are written in our sacred texts. And then there's the realm of law, which are the, the rules that our tradition teaches for how we should conduct our lives. And if we, as we turn to, in source number three, we move from a, the book of Breshit, the book of Genesis, which is primarily a book of narrative, to the book of Vayikra, or Leviticus, which is a book uh, of laws primarily. And we have three verses that I always say, if I had to choose one passage from all of Tanakh to teach for, and learn for the rest of my life, it would be, the, it would be this passage. Uh, we're in Vayikra chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. And they, we're, going to, we're going to come up with this, 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 this uh, root of hochiach or tochacha uh, in these verses. Uh, can I have another volunteer to read? Steve. Okay, so in three short verses, we've got a prohibition on gossip. We've got don't stand by the blood or don't, literally don't stand over the blood of your fellow, often translated as don't stand idly by the blood of your fellow. And you don't stand there and don't be a bystander. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Reprove your kinsman. It's actually in Hebrew, it's doubled for emphasis. And do not incur guilt because of him. So that's a, what does it mean? Don't incur guilt. Uh, literally, don't carry sin because of him. And then finally, don't take vengeance and don't bear a grudge. And love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this is a dense three verses. And we're not going to have time uh, in, the, uh, in the time uh, tonight, in the time that remains, to fully unpack or examine all of them. But I wanted to bring all three because I don't think that this mitzvah, I want to show that this mitzvah of rebuke does not exist in isolation. It's brought in the context of a whole constellation of 
other uh, commandments related to how we relate to our fellow human beings. Uh, of not gossiping, but not standing idly, but standing idly by while injustice is done. And those two, I think, are brought together because they are often in tension with each other, right? Our desire not to speak ill of someone could lead us to say nothing when we see that person wronging another person, God forbid. Uh, and also, it's brought in the context of not hating our fellow and not taking revenge or bearing grudges, but loving our fellow. So I want to zero in specifically on verse 17, which is, don't hate your brother in your heart, Reprove your kinsmen. Do not incur guilt because of him. What do you think these three... And I, I just want to acknowledge that there's a little bit of an ambiguity here. What are these three things... How do these three mitzvot interrelate? Why are they brought in a single verse? And the, the bigger ambiguity is, what is the guilt that we are risking incurring? So any thoughts about... How, what's, the, what's the relationship of don't hate your brother in your heart, reprove or rebuke your kinsman, and don't, don't incur guilt? Okay, I want to bracket that. That's a great question, um, but it's beyond the scope of, uh, of, of this class. Tonight, but uh, you know, I one, I don't think this is the answer to your question. You're asking what is what is it, what is what is uh, Ani Hashem? I am the Lord. Have to do with all these other mitzvot, and I think one of the things that I might be doing there, and various commentators are saying various different things. The way I read this is that these are all mitzvot. These are all commandments about how we treat other human beings, and God is just reminding us that there's not a really a separation between the way we treat our fellow human being and our relationship with the divine. You can't, it's a myth that you could be such a from, such a religiously pious person if you're not, if you're not doing the, if you're not following by these basic rules and laws of how you should treat your fellow human being. That, 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 that separation of ben adam lamakom, between our relationship with God and ben adam lachavero, our relationship with our fellow humans, that's an illusory uh, dichotomy. If we repress our moral response to injustice, we will foster hate within us. And that, that hate will be destructive to our inner lives. Ah, so you're saying if we see injustice and we fail to do tochacha, we fail to speak up, we're actually somehow fostering, that will somehow lead us, uh, that will foster hate within us. And um, the Ramban, Nachmanides, says something similar. He says that the idea of rebuke is connected to not hating because if someone wrongs us, he doesn't connect it to third-party injustice. He says, if someone wrongs me and I don't say anything, for sure I'm going to hate them in my heart. But by saying something, I'm giving them the opportunity, as Avraham did to Avimelech, to either explain themselves. Maybe I misunderstood what I thought they did. Maybe I got the wrong end of the stick and they actually didn't do anything wrong and my hate would be baseless. 
or I give them the opportunity to actually correct their behavior. And then I don't need to, and then, uh, but that if I don't do that, I'm in danger of hating them in my heart. And that, of, that actually says, Chizkuni, uh, another commentator, that, uh, that would be the sin that I would bear because of them. I shouldn't hate my fellow in my heart, and therefore I should rebuke them, because if I don't rebuke them, I'm going to hate them, and that would be a sin. So this is actually, in some ways, less about, for, for, the, for Chizkuni and Ramba, Ramban, this is less about protesting injustice against third parties and more about how I feel about someone. If I see someone doing something that I think is wrong, I need to say something because, A, I could be wrong. I'm fallible. I might be misperceiving things or not have the whole picture. And I need to give them the opportunity to defend themselves. And B, even if they have done something wrong, uh, I need to get this off my chest so that I don't, I'm not keeping it pent up inside and I'm going to hate them. And maybe they will have the they will, this will give them the opportunity to, to right the wrong. Yeah? Do you think that Ellie Wiesel encapsulated this in his statement that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference? Or is that a whole different um, the opposite of love is not hate, is indifference. I certainly can see some elements uh, how we can interpret that statement in light of these, these, these verses, especially when we have the injunction to love our fellow in the very next verse. So we have don't hate them, rebuke them, and love them. And I think maybe there's a way, that's a way of saying real love is actually telling someone when they're in the wrong. Uh, and actually, uh, and, 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 and what we might say looks like indifference actually is real, is what hatred is and the opposite of love. I don't, right. you know, don't want to, you know, there's a, is, I, I, I thank you for bringing that, that text into dialogue. I think, uh, I don't think he's saying exactly what these verses are saying, but it seems there's, there's a relationship there. The not engaging is in some ways He's saying that's worse than hate. I think these verses, as Ramban and Chizkuni interpret them, are saying that leads to hate, or it is going to, uh, yeah, it, it is hate, or it leads to hate. Um, there's a, there are, this is not the only way to read the, these, this verse. Um, interestingly, uh, Rashi, the uh, sort of Torah commentator par excellence, he doesn't say anything about what the what the relationship between don't hate your fellow in your heart is to tochacha, but he does say he, what he thinks the sin is, he doesn't think the sin is the hate. He thinks this, the don't bear sin on, your, uh, on account of your fellow is a warning about how we deliver tochacha, how we deliver rebuke. He says, don't deliver rebuke in such a way that you will shame or embarrass the person. Because that would be a sin. It's a compositive commandment. It's a mitzvah to rebuke someone. But if you do it in such a way that's shaming, then it's actually no longer a mitzvah. It's an avera. It's a sin. So the and it's highlighting, I think, this uh, the fine line we walk when we protest or when we rebuke someone, even on the individual level that it's important to speak up for what's right. 
But when we, cross, we allow our zeal for, for what we see as the truth or our zeal for justice to become an excuse for mistreating the person we see as committing the injustice, we're no longer the good guys anymore. Uh, it, I think what Rashi is saying. And I think if we're reading it that way, we, could, we might look at the statement, don't hate your fellow in your heart, as a warning about what should be our internal hone and feeling when we're engaging in rebuke. Because if I'm engaging in rebuke with hate in my heart, I'm probably going to do it in a way that's, that's hurtful and toxic. But if I can engage in rebuke free from hate in my heart, then uh, I'm more likely to be able to do it in a way that is not shaming, is not publicly embarrassing, and is actually creating the opportunity for someone maybe to change or explain to me how I got the wrong end of the stick. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Uh, this is a, a piece of advice someone once gave me was, if, you've got to, if you have a problem with someone, you want to you wanna, you wanna bring up some, uh, an issue you have with someone, and you want them to change their behavior, you should only do it if you want them to, if you are doing this because you want what's good for them. Because you want their good. If you're doing this because you, and you don't care about their good, you're wasting your time talking to them. All right, let's, let's jump. This is all this seems, we've gotten really deep into the weeds of individual rebuke, which seems to be what these verses are talking about. What about the communal level? What about the societal or political level? Let's jump forward to text number five. This is from um, the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Shabbat, 54b. Uh, and it's, I'm, we're using, uh, I brought uh, the translation of uh, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz. And just for those of you who have the source sheet, his convention is the literal translation is in bold. And the non-bolded text in the English is his commentary filling in the gaps uh, to make the... Uh, the terse language of the Talmud more understandable. So when you're reading, what you're reading that's not in bold is uh, Rav Steinsaltz, and what you're reading in bold is the text of the Talmud itself. Um, can I uh, have a, uh, a volunteer to read source number five? We can repeat uh, readers at this point. Don't worry, but. It was related that Rav and Rabbi Hanina and Rabbi Yohan Okay. So the so the Talmud is making a, an editorial comment about textual integrity, saying. Uh, it actually shouldn't be, I know it says Yohanan, but it really should be Yonatan. Okay, so Rabbi Yohanan or Rabbi Yonatan uh, uh, is, is a little uh, sort of beside the point for the purposes of this class, but uh, I... How, the, would, how would Steinsaltz know this? That's not even Steinsaltz, that's the Talmud saying that. Oh, okay. 
the Talmud is saying, the Talmud says it's taught in the name of Rabbi of Rav and Rabbi Hanina and Rabbi Yochanan and Rav Chaviva. Uh, and then the Talmud interrupts itself and says, actually, throughout this section of the Talmud, uh, where it says Rabbi Yochanan, it really should be Rabbi Yonatan. Okay. In any event. So it's an editorial note. Right. In any event, they said anyone who had the capability to effectively protest the sinful conduct of the members of his household and did not protest, he himself is apprehended for the sins of the members of his household and punished. If he is in a position to protest the sinful conduct of the people of his town and he fails to do so, he is apprehended for the sins of the people of his town. If he is in a position to protest the sinful conduct of the whole world and he fails to do so, he is apprehended for the sins of the whole world. Okay, this text takes us from the verses in Vayikra that we just read, which would seem to be speaking about an individual uh, obligation, that individuals that I'm connected with, I have an obligation to speak to them, right? It says, reprove your kinsman. That's someone I have a relationship with. I don't have a, a relationship with heads of corporations and heads of states and generals and uh, but the people I have a relationship with I'm obligated to protest their wrong conduct. Now the Talmud comes along and says it's not just about the individuals you're connected to directly. Basically what is it what is this text saying? It's saying that you are going to incur guilt of the people that somehow you're responsible for if you let them run amok. Right, right. It says anyone I have the capacity to protest, who's, anyone whose behavior I have the ca capacity to protest. What that means, that I have the capability of protesting behavior, well, is a, is a, is a, is a little ambiguous. Anyone, 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 well, that's the question. Anyone whose behavior I have the capability of protesting and I fail to protest their behavior, I bear, I bear this, the, some measure of guilt for what they do wrong. Right? So if, I, if all I have influence over is my own household, that's where my, my responsibility and my culpability ends. But the, to the degree that I have influence beyond... The, the greater influence that I have in the world, the greater my responsibility to speak up. And, um, but according to this text, however, where I have zero influence, is there, is there a commandment, is there a mitzvah to protest where I have no influence? So if we understand the statement, capability to protest, which... Rav Steinzeltz fills in effectively protest. And we can ask ourselves what, depending on what we think the goals of protest are, we might have different, different definitions of effectively. If my goal of protest is to change a behavior, to change the situation on the ground, then if I know that my protesting is not going to change the policy or the behavior, then according to that interpretation, <laughs> I'd have no responsibility to protest. However, you, uh, we, the, the, there's another way of reading capability to protest. Physical capability. Physical capability, or I am able to protest safely. You spoke before, we have to protest now because we 
can, which I interpreted as meaning before in history, it was too dangerous, the, the political situations we were living in. The risks were so great that we couldn't safely protest. The fact that we live in a society where for many of us, we can protest safely means that we then have a responsibility to protest safely. And not only that, that if we don't, then whatever it is that we're failing to protest is uh, we bear responsibility for. So there's two ways of reading this. Is it, do I have the, if I ha do I have the ability to change the actual facts on the ground? If so, I have the responsibility. Or am I just able to? Am I able to protest, regardless of what its uh, effect are? And this, um, this, I think this two ways of interpreting that statement are borne out in the next text, which comes from the uh, later in the same passage in the Talmud. Uh, would someone like to read text six? With regard to the issue of reprimand, it was related that Rabbi Zira, I say that right? Rabbi Zera. The exile, sort of the head of the Jewish community in exile living in Babylonia. So modern day Iraq, after the, uh, after the exile, after the destruction of the temple, the center of Jewish life eventually moves to Babylonia, which is where this, uh, the, 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 ba the Babylonian Talmud is compiled. And uh, Rabbi Zera is telling Rabbi Shimon he should be protesting the behavior of the ruling family in the, in the community. Okay, so Rabbi Shimon says, they won't accept it. So since they aren't going to listen to me, uh, there's no point in me protesting, right? I'm not going to stop their behavior, so why bother protesting? He seems to be interpreting uh, this principle that we just, we just read as being if you have the ability to change the behavior, you have an obligation to protest. And if not, okay, you're, you're not responsible. But Rabbi Zera is going to read it differently. So Rabbi Zayir says, no, even if they're not going to listen to you, you should, you should reprimand them. And now he's going to bring a sort of strange and convoluted proof text. But let's, uh, let's, okay. let's, let's, let's go through it. It's kind of, it's uh, provocative, but, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, but very interesting. As Rabbi Ahas, son of Rabbi Hanina said, never did a promise manifesting a good attribute emerge from the mouth of the Holy One be God, and God later retracted it and rendered it evil, except with regard to this matter. Okay, I'm going to pause you there. So he says, only once in history did God ever promise something good and then change his mind. Did he ever say he was going to do something nice and kind and then change his mind? What's this one example in history where God changed his mind not from evil to good, but from good to, uh, as, it, uh, as, it, as it were, evil. Um, as it was written, and God said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark, Tav, upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry on account of all the abominations that are done in her midst. 
So that's the verse from Yechezkel. And now the, the Talmud is going to explain what happened. The Holy One, blessed be God, said to the angel Gabriel, go and inscribe a tab of ink on the foreheads of the righteous as a sign so that the angels of destruction will not have dominion over them. And inscribe a tab of blood on the foreheads of the wicked as a sign so that the angels of destruction will have dominion over them. Okay, so there's... In, Injustice going on in the land of uh, in the land of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, and God says to the angel Gabriel, "Put a mark of ink on the foreheads of all the righteous, and a mark of blood on the foreheads of the wicked. And then, when the, the, I unleash the forces of destruction in the world, the wicked will be destroyed, and the righteous will be spared." Okay, so the attribute of justice says, how are these different from those? I don't see any difference between these two groups of people you just named. Now God is going to argue. God said to that attribute, full-fledged righteous people and those are full-fledged wicked people. Okay, God says, what do you mean they're the same? We've got Sadiqim Gemurim, fully righteous, and Rishayim Gemurim, fully, fully wicked. Uh, we've... How can you say that they're the same? The attribute of justice said to God, Master of the universe, it was in the hands of the righteous to protest the conduct of the wicked, and they did not protest. The Holy One, blessed be God, retracted God's promise to protect the righteous and decided that those who failed to protest would also be punished. So the, 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 the attribute of justice argues before God. It, because the righteous fail to protest the conduct of the wicked, they're no better than the wicked. And God, it seems, agrees and accepts the arguments of the attribute of justice and retracts his decree that the righteous are going to be despaired in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, this text is in part just grappling with the reality that the Jewish people have lived through this trauma in which seemingly righteous and wicked have perished together. And it's the larger question of how do we explain, part of the larger question of how do we explain the suffering of the righteous uh, and the, the uh, separate from the question of how do we explain the flourishing of the wicked in the world. But in this local case, the answer that the Talmud brings, and there's many answers brought to that question, one of which is we can't answer that question. Uh, in this local case, the Talmud says, well, in this case, the righteous weren't so righteous because they didn't actually say or do anything to protest wickedness. Maybe they weren't participating in injustice and evil themselves, but the fact that they didn't speak up made them culpable, along with the wicked. So this brings, to me, brings me back to this question of, if we know our protests are not going to be heard, why do we have an obligation to protest? Not only an obligation to protest, but an obliga obligation so much so that I, if I fail to do so, I'm going to be considered in some way no better than those who are actually engaging in the wicked behavior themselves. Right. So we said before, <coughs> maybe our obligation to protest is just to stop the behavior. But this seems as if that's the case, this, I don't think that adequately explains why Rabbi Shimon uh, uh, would have an obligation to speak 
up against the behavior of the powerful family of the time if it, if it wasn't going to be heard. And, nor, and certainly in a situation in Jerusalem where wickedness was so rampant that no one, everyone despaired of actually changing it, why the righteous who didn't speak up would be culpable. So why else might it be important for us to protest, even when it might be seemingly uh, futile, right? So this is, I think, connected to uh, setting a precedent for the future. This sort of larger, which are both connected to the larger question of who our audience is when we protest. Maybe our audience is those who are in control and in power, in which case, then the measure is, are we probably, do we change their behavior or not? We said before, maybe, maybe we're actually just trying to set a precedent for the future. Our audience is future generations. Rav Shmuley says maybe our audience is those who are the victims of injustice will know they're not alone. I think this is, right, I might not be able to change the conditions that someone's living in, but the fact that they know that other people are outraged by their condition might make that condition a little more bearable. I think, um, you know, I think about this, you know, in uh, my role as a rabbi, sometimes, very often, I visit people who are going through some of the worst times in their lives, and there's literally nothing I can say or do to change that. They've lost loved ones, they're going through uh, terrible illnesses, and there's nothing I can do to change that. And there's nothing I can do to make that better. But the one thing that I can do is sit with someone. And just knowing that one's not alone in, in, in their, knowing I'm not alone in my suffering actually makes that suffering easier to bear. So just the fact that someone knows, if I'm a victim of injustice, the fact that I know that the world is full of good people who, who aren't accepting this makes me feel at least, I'm going to feel a little bit less alone, perhaps. Um, thank you, thank you, Rav Shmuley. Why else might we um, have a responsibility to protest even if it's not going to quote unquote be effective? Yes, Steve. I think uh, we can protest to alert those who are not aware of the Right, so we're educating the community. So maybe it won't be effective this second, but I'm educating, uh, educating the larger community. Not just those in power, but maybe those who might be able to then build some uh, kind of groundswell of a movement. So maybe tomorrow the behavior is not going to change, the policy is not going to change. But over time, uh, uh, so uh, maybe there will be a change. So this is also future oriented, uh, but maybe less the future of distant generations, but the future of maybe next year or in a decade, right? We're not going to change this, uh, this condition tomorrow or next week, but if we can build a movement, we can maybe change that in 10 years or in a generation. Um, other reasons. Other reasons why we might have an obligation to protest even when we are not going to be quote-unquote effective. So I have a couple other ideas about why this might be. Um, I uh, we, we, so we've talked about stopping the behavior. We've talked about maintaining religious integrity, setting a precedent for future generations, 
letting victims know they're not al they're, that they're seen and they're not alone, educating the larger community. Before I... Exactly. So, so this is exactly that. If I fail, I would. I'm, you're framing it in the positive. I'm doing it to remind myself of my moral priorities. Um, I would. I was thinking about the the sort of. I was thinking that in the negative. I like the way you framed it in the positive. I was thinking that if I fail to protest injustice, I am going to slowly and inevitably become inured to that injustice. So I'm praying to remind myself that this is not okay. Because God forbid I should come to think that this is something that's, uh, that I can live with. And if I fail to speak up because I'm afraid or I'm, uh, I'm despairing, I might come to fail to speak up because I'm just numb. So I want to change myself, keep from becoming numb. Um, and I have... Two more thoughts, and one of them is, de is connected to what Rav, Shmu uh, Rav Shmuley said about maintaining religious integrity. And I think it's connected to your question about what that phrase, Ani Hashem, I am the Lord, means. That Jewish people, for better or for worse, we, we have this role in this world as a kingdom of priests, as, as serving as emissaries for God's Torah, and God's message to the world, which means that our behavior, for good or evil, reflects not only on our people, but on the Torah and on, as it were, God's self. God's reputation in the world is bound up with our own. So if evil is happening, as a Jew, I have an obligation to speak out against it, because to be silent in the face of evil is actually... Uh, for a Jew to be silent in the face of evil becomes a chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name. And I think that might be what that I am the Lord your God is doing in the middle of these verses about how we treat other people. Um, that our, the way we respond to injustice and the way we treat other people is, has the potential to be a sanctification or God forbid a desecration of God's name. One more reason, which is uh, we might protest even when it's quote-unquote going to be ineffective, and this is based on source number eight on page four. Um, and this is not a classical, biblical, or Talmudic source. This comes from uh, my teacher and Rav Shmuley's teacher, Rav Avi Weiss, uh, from his book, Spiritual Activism. He's quoting an earlier uh, tradition, uh, that, uh, but uh, I, I like the way he tells this story. So, uh, can I have someone read this, uh, this, this text from Ravavi? No. A parable. In the kingdom of Solomon, there once lived a two-headed man. Upon the death of his father, the man became embroiled in a bitter dispute with his brothers and sisters over the inheritance. Since I have two heads, he claimed, I deserve twice as much of the money as the rest of you. Oh, I love this story. Perhaps you have two heads, his siblings responded, but you have just one body. Therefore, you, you, deserve only, you, deserve. you deserve only one share. The case was brought before King Solomon, the wisest of the wise. His response was characteristically enlightening. 
pour boiling water over the one of the man's two heads, said King Solomon. If the second head screams in pain, then we will know he is one person. If not, then we have determined that the two-headed person is in fact two separate, independent individuals. So too with the Jewish people. So too with all of humankind. If there is a member of our family anywhere in the world in pain, if boiling water is being poured over his or her head, and if we feel that pain as if it were our own head being scalded, then we will have proven that we are one people. But if we do not scream out in agony, then we will have shown we are nothing more than a divergent and disconnected group of individuals. So this story is fundamentally a statement about empathy and the power of empathy, that being one means feeling one another's pain. And that, uh, and I actually, I like the, the parable itself, because in the parable itself, it's about, does the person scream out in pain? Does one head scream out in pain when the other head is injured? And that really, truly being one, if we, we say, we talk about achdus, we talk about the unity of the Jewish people, we talk about the oneness of the human, the human species, we're one, one human race. If we really believe that, not just intellectually, but we really feel that in our kishkas, then, it's, then we can't help but cry out when anyone anywhere is suffering or oppressed. So we protest not because there's a rational reason to do it. We protest whether it's going to be effective or not because we can't help it. If we really love our fellow as ourselves, if we really are buying into the unity of our people, the unity of all humanity, then we can't help but scream out when others are in pain and not think about, well, is it really going to make a difference? Does it really, is my voice really going to matter? We'll, we're going to protest because we're going, we, we have to, because we have no other choice. We covered a lot of ground tonight, and I just want to review a little bit about where we've gone. We talked about the long tradition of Jewish protest going back to Abraham, and how very often that would, those protests seem to be ineffective, uh, at least if they are measured by the, uh, the, the criterion of, did the thing I was protesting actually change in real time? And we spoke about how on the individual level, it's a commandment, it's a mitzvah to protest when we see someone doing something wrong. Uh, and that that's actually, um, that's actually a function of avoiding hating that person, but that it is also dangerous because uh, if we do it the wrong way, we could actually uh, injure that person and publicly humiliate them, which would be uh, a sin on our part. And then we read that according to the Talmud, that to the degree that we might have some influence, there's a commandment to protest behavior, even when it's not just our own, uh, the people we're directly in relationship with. And that according to Rabbi Zera, one of the rabbis of the Talmud, at least, that, we might, that, that obligation might even extend to situations where, as with Abraham and so many other examples of the prophets of the, of the Tanakh, of the Bible, we know we're not going to be effective. And we articulated a number of reasons for that. Uh, 
the pro, the, that it might be because it, the goal is not just stopping the behavior, but maintaining our, our own religious integrity, setting a precedent and an example for future generations. Maybe no one's listening to me now, but who knows who's going to read about this, uh, this moment in history 20, 100, 1,000 years from now. Uh, and this idea, which, was, uh, which I had not thought of from Rav Shmuley, I want to thank you for that. We should want to let people who are victims of injustice know that they're not alone. We want to educate the larger community for, uh, so that in the future, maybe not a thousand years from now, but maybe next year or next election cycle, the conditions on the ground will be different. And we talked about changing myself so that I'm more attuned to what my values ought to be, or at the least to keep myself from becoming numb. And we spoke about the fact that as Jews, if we are really God's people, then failing to speak up against injustice, whether our speaking up will be effective or not, failing to speak up would be, God forbid, a desecration of God's name. And speaking up, conversely, could be a sanctification of God's name. And last, we spoke, uh, we spoke about this idea that if we truly are one people, one Jewish people, one human race, then when another person is suffering, we can't help but cry out. And I just want to say uh, that uh, the, when, we, when, we do, we're so, when we are all so deeply connected with our fellows, uh, fellow human beings, our fellow Jews, with bonds of empathy and love, that we don't need to ask whether we should protest or not. We just do it. Then when enough people feel that way and really act on that, the, uh, the outcries against injustice will be so spontaneous and natural and widespread that we will have the power we need to right historical wrongs and build a world of justice, love, and peace. And I want to end with a prayer that we may soon see that world soon and in our days. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.